Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. For the last seven months, we've been working through 1 Samuel, a chapter at a time. We finished that up last week. We'll pick up in 2 Samuel in January after Advent. So this morning, I want to do a little bit of a recap uh, over the couple of points to me that really stuck out. So big events that happened in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel's born. We see his career as uh the last judge of Israel. Archie begin. Israel asks rebelliously for a king. God says to Samuel, it's okay. Give them a king. Saul is anointed to be the king. Uh, the, the Israelites wanted a king like all the other nations had. And Saul is uh, cut from that cloth. So Saul is anointed to be king. He reigns for 42 years, but we just get a little bit on his reign because he he's disobedient. He's disobedient to the Lord uh, persistently, and so God rejects him. God rejects him, and then he calls and anoints David to be the king. And then the, the back half of 1 Samuel is all about uh, Saul pursuing David in order to kill him, and God protecting David from Saul and preserving him for his destiny for the throne. And then last week we saw Saul committing suicide, and that's, that's the last that we will hear from him. Uh, Two things I want to look at today, I don't know what you would call them, two moves of God that to me maybe don't strike us or don't strike me necessarily as very godlike, and yet they're here in 1 Samuel. And I do think they give us some insight into who God is and how God wants to relate to us. So one is God remembers, and the second is that God regrets, and both of those are taken from 1 Samuel. So God remembers, 1 Samuel 1. Hannah, if you remember all the way back to April and you don't, Hannah is Samuel's mother. She's married to Elkanah, Samuel's father. Elkanah has two wives, which never works out well for anyone. One of his wives is able to have children, and Hannah is not able to have children. And Peninnah, the one who's able to have children, provokes Hannah over this because Elkanah loves Hannah the most. And Elkanah, in kind of a, a bless your heart kind of moment, says to Hannah, well, aren't, aren't I enough for you? And of course the answer is no, you're not, you're not close to enough for me. Hannah wants a son. And so in her bitterness, or at least disappointment, if not bitterness, she turns to the Lord. She prays. God hears her prayer and God opens her womb. So there in chapter one, verse 19, you can see that on the screen. Early the next morning, that's after in the temple, they arose, that's Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, and they worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. There's that key phrase. The Lord remembered Hannah. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So that word remember is a big word in the Old Testament. If it's applied to people, it's just like what we think. It's I forgot something. And I, and I recall, he's omniscient, he never forgets anything. It really speaks to God moving on behalf of someone who honestly feels forgotten. It's, it's God remembers, that's really looking at things from our perspective. It appears as if God has forgotten us. God remembers and he moves. So it's God moving on the behalf of someone who, after a period of silence or after a period of inactivity, you see it in Genesis 8. Moses, or excuse me, Noah's on an ark with his family and with all of these animals. And after 150 days, we read that God remembered Noah. There's, there, there's nothing else going on in the world at the time. It's, it's all water. That's all, that's all the action. 
It's just the ark. God, he's not dealing with other planets. It's just the earth and Noah in the boat. He, he didn't forget. He, 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 Noah's brought to his mind, or he, he in, in Noah's mind, if you can imagine living in that space with your family and the animals, I don't know which of those would be the most difficult for you, but in that confined space, for that period of time, probably easy to feel forgotten by the Lord. And God remembers, and he sends a wind, and the, the way the, the water recedes. You see in Genesis 30, Rachel is buried, and she's married to Jacob, who also has another wife. Again, doesn't work out well for him. And one of his wives, Leah, is able to have children, and Rachel's not. And, and in Genesis 30, we read that God remembers her, and she's able to conceive and gives birth. To Joseph, We see it in Exodus. The Israelites have been in bondage for 400 years. Then God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he raises up Moses to deliver them from slavery. So this idea of God remembering, again, it's, it's, it, don't think of God as forgetting something and recalling information. Think of it as God moving on behalf of someone. After a, It certainly looks like at times God forgets. And then when he remembers and he moves, it's powerful and it's comforting and it stirs hope and joy and all of those things. That's what we see in Hannah's life. God remembers her. In chapter 15, God regrets. So Israel's asked for a king. I think it's rebellious that they did. Speaking to Samuel, the prophet says, don't worry about it. They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. I'm their king and they're rejecting me as the king. And Israel says, we just want a king the other nations have we want a king who's going to lead us into battle that has been god's role up to this point and they're saying we want a person who we can trust a person we can look at who's going to be at the front of the army who's going to say i've got this and and god says okay give them a king and so they samuel anoints saul out of the six hundred thousand men or however many there are in israel god picks saul and he is a king like all the other nations have he's physically imposing a head taller than everyone else he's handsome he's from a well-to-do family he's a capable military leader he's everything they're asking for and yet he's persistently disobedient he does not obey the lord obeying the lord fully we see this partial obedience at best. And when Saul, is convict, when Saul is confronted with this sin, rather than confessing and repenting, he lies, he blames, and he justifies. Pattern of rebellion. God rejects him. He says, I'm moving on. I'm going to pick a better man. That's what God says. I'm picking a better man to be king, a man after my own heart. He's saying this to Samuel. And in chapter 15, verse 11, God says, I regretted. I regret that I made Saul the king. That doesn't necessarily sound like a word that we associate with God. It's an emotional word. The Hebrew behind it is Naham. If you remember, we talked about this in, I think, late July, early August. It's a difficult It's an emotional word. It speaks to the sorrow or the pain God feels over this decision, the way, God, the way Saul is acting as king. But it's also an active word. God does something. He removes Saul and he anoints David. In Genesis chapter 6, we see the word used in the exact same way. God regretted, or he naham, that he had made people because the depth of depravity of humanity at that time was so significant. God said, I'm starting over, and so he sends a flood to cleanse the entire earth. He regretted that he made people. It's, again, an emotional word, that, and it's also an active word. God nahams, and this fact that God remembers and that God regrets to me is a, is a window into who he is. He's a God who 
responds to his people. He's a responsive God. I don't know if you see him that way. He's a responsive God. You see that in 1 Samuel. We see him remembering, and he remembers based on the prayers of Hannah. Hannah prays, and God opens her womb. We actually read in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that it was God who closed her womb. We don't know why, but he does. God closes her womb, then he opens it when she prays. With Rachel, God listened to her. And then she has a she has Joseph. With the Egyptians, or excuse me, with the Israelites in Egypt, God hears their groaning, and then he raises up Moses. In every case we have this idea of God listening to his people and responding to their hearts. He's a responsive God. This idea of God nahaming or we've seen it translated regret. It also can mean relent. Regret kind of has a negative connotation. It's when God is intending something good and then he has to change course or change his, uh, his intended action. And he issues judgment where maybe that wasn't originally what he intended. It definitely wasn't the case in Genesis 6. It wasn't the case about humanity or remove Saul. But because of the actions of humanity and the actions of Saul, God had to change his plan. He had to change his course of action. He regretted what he had done in that sense. We also see that word translated relent. If God has decreed disaster and then people repent, he changes his mind. He then doesn't execute that judgment you see it in exodus 32 moses is up on a mountain the israelites are down in the valley and they make a golden calf and they begin to worship it and god's ticked and he says i'm wiping them out and i'm starting over with you moses and moses says don't do that don't kill them he prays for the people and god nahams he relents the judgment that he had intended to inflict he says no i'm not going to do that beautiful picture in jonah you can read the book in 15 minutes You see this idea, Ninevites are wicked, wicked, wicked people, and God sends Jonah to the Ninevites, and Jonah doesn't want to go because he wants them to suffer because he hates them. They're enemies of Israel, and he wants them to suffer, and he knows if I go and I preach this message of judgment, if they repent, then God won't do it, and I want them to suffer. And so he runs away, literally in the opposite direction of Nineveh, and there's the whole thing with the fish, and the fish catches Jonah and spits him out on the shores of Nineveh after Jonah's heart has been changed, and he preaches, and these people, these wicked Ninevites, the king says, listen, if we repent, maybe God will naham. If we repent, maybe God will relent, and he won't judge us. And so they repent, and God doesn't, and Jonah's ticked. And in the last chapter, chapter 4, where he's whining to God, he actually describes God as a God who nahams, a God who relents from sending disaster or calamity. He's a God who is responsive to the behavior and the actions of people. Jeremiah 18 is the clearest statement. If God has decreed judgment and people repent, then he'll naham. He won't send it. And if God has decided to bless somebody and people start acting wickedly, then he'll naham. He'll reconsider. He won't bless them. I don't know how that computes for you if that to me it doesn't undermine god's sovereignty at all for some people it does they they see god as this chess master and he's moving pieces around on the board we don't really have a lot of say in anything he's sovereignly orchestrating all of the events and everything is working towards a predetermined end and all of our lives are a, a script that's already been written i don't see that in the bible at all 
God is sovereign 100%. But you don't, as you read through the Bible, to me, the, the sense you get, and it's a metaphor, you can definitely push it too far, is much more of like a coach. Someone who recognizes I'm dealing with people here, and they have choices to make. They have free will, and there's, a, there's a, an, an object to be accomplished. We're definitely not peers, for sure. But he's working through us, and he's working with us. And in some cases, he's working in spite of us. To accomplish his purposes. To me, it provokes worship. It causes me to adore him more when I think of the power and the wisdom that are necessary to somehow orchestrate through the, 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 the choices of people who are submitted to him and the choices of people who are rebelling against him and the activity of an enemy who steals and kills and destroys and the, the effects of a fall where we have a world that in some cases is falling apart and in some cases we're seeing the kingdom of God break in and that God's able to work all of that together to accomplish his purposes to me. That's amazing, much more so than that God can make a remote control car go where he wants it to go. If those are my two choices. What you see in 1 Samuel is that God is responsive to his people. He responds to the prayers of Hannah. He regrets that he made Saul king because Saul acted so wickedly in terms of disobeying God as king. Saul was that we talked about last week. Saul was actually a really good king on paper. But when it came to his heart, his relationship with the Lord was non-existent. When Saul refers to God almost every time he refers to God as your God, Samuel, never to him as my God, the God of Saul. There's no relationship there. And so ultimately that lack of relationship leads to rejection of Saul by God. Two things I want you walking away with. One, the fact that God is responsive to us indicates that he wants relationship with us. If God just wanted servants to do his will, he wouldn't have done this. Angels are way better at doing what God wants done than we are. They're servants. We're sons and daughters. He's looking for family. He's looking to adopt us into his family as sons and daughters. And it's, a, it's risky on so many ways, because relationships, to be genuine, are two ways, right? God responds to us, and he's looking for us to respond to him. He initiated through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He takes care of the obstacle to relationship, our sin. We've broken relationship. God takes the initiative to restore it through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we just sang, he continues to pursue us. He doesn't just set things up and say, well, let's see what happens. Let's see who comes to me. He pursues us. We just sang that song. You can see that particularly in the ministry of Jesus, this relentless pursuit of God towards all. God doesn't desire anyone to perish. We read in the Bible, his desire is for all to come into a, a saving relationship with him. And so he pursues and he convicts and he convinces. But ultimately, he says... I'm looking for a response from you. What you see in Saul is that lack of responsiveness. He's persistently resistant to God, which demonstrates a lack of willingness to engage with God relationally, which leads ultimately to his rejection by God. Relationships are two ways. Saul's not interested. So ultimately what God says to him, C.S. Lewis famously says at the end, either we say to God, your will be done, or he says to us, well, your will be done. It's one or the other. And what he says to Saul ultimately is, well, your will be done. You're not interested in a relationship with me. You're not interested in obeying me. 
The word, my word has come clearly to you through Samuel and you have persistently disobeyed. And when you've been confronted, rather than repenting, you've lied, you've blamed, you've justified. And so if that's what you want, then that's what you get. And so God rejects them. That's what we call hell. God is the source of all good things. And if we're cut off from him, then we have access to none of that. That's hell. Existence without God. We see in David the the other side of the coin. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's so far from perfect. We see him just in 1 Samuel lie repeatedly. In 2 Samuel, we'll see him commit some of the most egregious sins in all of the Bible, and yet he continues to be called a man after God's own heart. That's the verdict on his life in Acts 13. When those guys can look back and see everything that he's done, everything that he's done, they say that's a guy after God's own heart. That guy. The one that sleeps with Bathsheba and kills her husband. That's a guy after God's own heart. Why? Not because he's perfect. Not even because his intentions are good, but he doesn't just execute very well. Because when he sins and he's convicted, he acknowledges his need for God's grace. He confesses and he repents. He's responsive to God. He's responsive. He's obedient as the Lord speaks in the places where he's disobedient, when he's confronted with his disobedience, rather than lying, rather than blaming, rather than justifying. He confesses and he repents. He acknowledges where he falls short. And he asks God for grace in those places. What it means to be a person, a man or a woman after God's own heart, has nothing to do with your behavior and everything to do with your responsiveness. God responds to us, which, which indicates he's looking for relationship. Again, John seventeen three, Jesus defines eternal life relationally. It's knowing him and the one who sent him, the Father. Relationships require response from both ends. Are you in relationship with him this morning? I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer at some point in your life or how often you go to church or how good you are. Would you say, yes, this morning I'm responding to God. I'm, I, my heart is responsive towards his leadership. I'm living led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. Attempting as, as much as I can to keep in step with the Spirit. Recognizing that God desires to guide me through the Word and through the Spirit today. I don't, I'm not perfect. I miss it all kinds of times. And when I miss it, I acknowledge that. I confess and I repent. But my heart is set towards following him. Not an intellectual understanding, but a personal connection and relationship. I'm responding to the Lord. Second thing I want you to think about. One of the primary ways... That we influence God. One of the primary ways God responds to us is through prayer. Hannah has Samuel because she prays. If Hannah doesn't pray, there is no Samuel. That's what the Bible says. She prays and God opens her womb. Think of all of the things that hinge on Samuel. It's amazing to me to think that God works through us. And like, there's got to be a backup plan. There's got to be. Can you, I wouldn't count on us, but he does. Somehow, again, it's, that to me, it blows my mind 
that provokes worship in me to think that God works through us. And it's not, he's not just messing around. It's not like uh, with your parents and they kind of give you this little thing to do that it doesn't really matter if it works out well or not. And they do the stuff that's really important. That's not how he works at all. Like all of the important stuff he does through his people. Think about Hannah. However many years that had been for her where she had been unable to conceive. And in that at minimum disappointment, if not bitterness towards him, how are things different? But she doesn't. Even though God closed her womb, she turns to him in prayer. Amazing picture of faith and trust. I don't know why God closed her womb. He wasn't disciplining her. Oh, excuse me. He wasn't punishing her. She's portrayed as one of the most righteous women in the Old Testament. Maybe he was disciplining her. Hebrews 12 says God disciplines those he loves. And maybe there's something he's trying to work in Hannah. I don't know. There are significant people in the Bible and the circumstances around their births are all pretty miraculous. You think about um, Abraham and Sarah. They have Isaac. She's bare and she's 90 years old when she has Isaac. You can think about it with um, Jacob. You can think about it with Joseph. You can think about it with John the Baptist. You can think about it with Jesus, born of a virgin. So it could very well be that just Hannah is part of God's bigger story. And these guys that are super significant in what God's doing, he, he draws a circle around them. He highlights them. Something special about them, even from birth. That could be it. I don't know. We don't know why God closed her womb, but we know the reason he opened it is because she prayed. The reason he opened it is because she prayed. What about you? Do you realize you have that level of influence with him? James says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. If you're in Christ, then you're righteous. You've received his righteousness. That means your prayers are powerful and effective. Doesn't matter how long you pray. Doesn't matter whether you're halting or whether you can string together a bunch of pretty words. You're righteous because you're in Christ. Therefore, your prayers are powerful and effective. Do you live accordingly? I challenged you back late July, early August. I said, pick something, one thing. And pray for it in August and in September and October and November and December. Pray for the same thing for five months. See what happens. See what happens. I hope you're doing that. If not, it's not too late. Get on the horse. God already knows what I need. Absolutely. We are not telling God something he does not know. We're inviting God to get involved in our life. That's what prayer is. You think God didn't know Hannah couldn't have a kid? Of course he knew. He was the reason she couldn't have a kid. He wasn't in, she wasn't informing him. She was inviting him. If you read her prayer, go back and read 1 Samuel 1, like 10 through 16, somewhere in there. She, it, it's, not a, it's, it, it's not a rote prayer. It's not ritualistic. She's, it's very raw. She says she's pouring out her heart to God. And think about how difficult that can be to pour out your heart to someone who is in some ways, causing your suffering. And yet again, the depth of faith that she has in God. Her disappointment doesn't cause her to turn away, but to turn towards. What about you this morning? Are you a person of prayer? Are you asking God to get involved? One of the primary ways you influence Him is by praying, if my people pray, then I will, which implies, if my people don't pray, then I won't. Are you asking him? 
Jesus talks about asking and seeking and knocking. And all of those verbs are in the tense. That means continual action. Asking, keep on asking. Seeking, keep on seeking. Knocking, keep on knocking. How many of us answer for God because we just quit asking? We just stop. He hadn't said no. We just give up. And so we've basically said no to ourselves. We've answered on behalf of him because we've quit. I recognize hope deferred makes the heart sick and it's difficult to continue to turn to him. When you think this would be super easy, not hard for you. Why, why is nothing happening here? I get it. But could you take some inspiration from Hannah and allow that disappointment or even bitterness, you may say, cause you to turn towards instead of turn away? Can you recognize the God who you are in relationship with is responsive to you? Your prayers influence him. Will you invite him to get involved this morning? Let's pray. Some of you, you're not to the spot where where prayer's even on the radar screen. You're still trying to decide the relationship peace what you need to hear is God is looking for children Jesus reveals God to us as father he's looking to adopt men and women into his family as sons and daughters He's not looking for slaves. So for you, the invitation and the responsibility, for me, the invitation and the responsibility, God responds to me. And he's looking to see if I will respond to him. He initiates and he pursues. And he continues to pursue. And he will pursue you until you take your last breath. But he won't coerce. He won't force. He won't reach in and twist you. He won't turn you around. Think of the prodigal son in Luke 15. father's right there when the son comes home but the son has to choose to come home are you in relationship with him this morning not have you been baptized not have you prayed a prayer not do you go to church or small group Are you living your life responsively? Are you living your life led? If eternal life is knowing Jesus, are you knowing him? Not have you known him. Are you knowing him this morning? If you're not, it's super simple. God, have mercy on me. My desire is to live in relationship with you. I thank you that you've removed.
enter to that relationship through the life and the death and the resurrection of your son. I thank you that you desire to adopt me into your family as a son or a daughter. And I say yes. I say yes. Would you come now and would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Who is the deposit guaranteeing my inheritance that I am indeed your son or your daughter? I desire to live led. Many of you, you're already doing that. That's that's the reality of your life. Are you praying this morning? Are you a person of prayer? No excuses anymore. No more procrastination. Are you asking God to get involved in the areas of your life that you most care about? And are you continuing to ask Him until He either does something or He says, stop asking? Like Hannah, are you asking with your heart, not just with your head? That's much more difficult. You're engaging on a deeper level. There's a lot more at risk there. What about if you've been asking and you haven't seen any changes? You're the one who feels forgotten. For 150 days or for six years like Rachel or for 400 years like the Israelites, you feel forgotten. In that state of forgottenness, are you going to turn to or are you going to turn away? In John 6, Jesus gives the most difficult sermon that we see in in any of the Gospels. He's just fed 5,000 men with a handful of food and everybody's going, he's the king. We're never going to have to work a day again in our lives. This guy can take care of us. And the crowds are huge. And in the midst of that, Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it turns everyone off. They're offended and they leave. And he looks at the 12 and says, what about y'all? And Peter, answering for the 12, says, where are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You're the only one that has the words of life what he's looking for. Job says, though God slay me, yet will I worship. Some of you this morning, that's you. You have a choice to make. I don't know why you're suffering. Maybe it's like Hannah. Maybe God is the source. That's a different question for a different day. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. In the midst of that suffering, will you turn towards or will you turn away? Continue to open that part of your heart and that part of your life to Him and say, Get involved. Will you ask Him this morning to remember you? He hasn't forgotten. Will you remind Him that He made a promise? Father, to be your healer, to be your provider, to be your deliverer. Will you remind him of that this morning? Take a couple of minutes, just quiet.
quietly in your seat before the Lord. Simply ask Him, God, show me what it looks like to respond faithfully to you this morning. For some of you, it's opening your heart up to the Lord for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. Just getting reacquainted. For some of you, there's a challenge on the table to become a person who prays. Again, no more excuses. of that in their own hearts in these next couple of minutes.